Running for me is an act of rebellion. There's subtext in which if there's a BIPOC person on the starting line and you see a picture of them in a sea of people, I feel like you're really giving a narrative that goes against the grain in terms of like what society is expecting of you or how society views you. So running for me is my personal act of rebellion. It is something that goes against the grain as to like what you do as a first generation Indian American. And uh, from our background, there's a huge emphasis on education in the sense of becoming a doctor, becoming an engineer and doing something that that I feel like juxtaposes that in a sense of like what people expect out of you is rebellion to me. What's up, everyone? I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and you are listening to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. My guest this week is Raj Paul Panu. Raj, who is 29 years old, recently finished second at the Hoka One One Project Carbon X2 100K in 6 hours, 28 minutes, and 31 seconds. It was his debut at the distance and the third fastest time ever run by an American. He's also a 217 marathoner and math teacher who is currently splitting his time between Denver, Colorado and the Bay Area. I loved this conversation and I think you will too. Raj has an enthusiasm about him that's contagious and an introspectiveness that I really admire. We talked about his most recent race, of course, and what he was feeling before, during and after it. He told me about re-examining his relationship with running after the Olympic trials marathon last year and how he's used the pandemic to rethink his goals, priorities, and identity as a runner. Raj also recalled the first run he ever went on. He described how a family history of heart disease and his dad's early passing factored into taking those first strides and a lot more. A big thank you to New Balance for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. This is a brand that I grew up around and whose products I've trusted and used consistently for a long time. Over the past year, the shoe that I've logged the most miles in is the Fresh Foam 1080. I went through multiple pairs of the V10 before getting my hands on the new V11 model just a few weeks ago, and man, oh man, do I love this shoe. New Balance claims the 1080 offers the ultimate ride, and I really can't argue with them on that statement. The Fresh Foam 1080 V11 is the best fitting shoe that I own, hands down. And the Fresh Foam X cushioning feels super comfortable underneath my feet, whether I'm running 5 miles or 15. It's lightweight and flexible, but also responsive and durable. Basically, the perfect trainer to log most of your miles in, which is exactly what I do in them. I wear it on most of my non-workout days and for long runs too. You can check out the Fresh Foam 1080 V11 on newbalance.com or at the links in the show notes and consider adding a pair to your rotation today. All right, that's it for the introduction. Please enjoy my conversation with Rajpal Panu. Right, Raj Panu. I've watched your flowing locks run away from me in many a PA series cross country race over the past few years. It's a real pleasure to welcome you to the Morning Shakeout podcast. 
Hey, thanks for having me, Mario. So we're almost exactly two weeks removed from the Hoka Project Carbon X2 100K. That was your first 100K, and you finished second in 628.31. That's the third fastest time ever run by an American. I'm curious, how are you feeling right now? Uh, oh my gosh, a, a lot of emotions for sure. Um, I'd say physically, I feel really, really good, to be honest. Um, and I think that just goes to show that I could have ran it a lot smarter or better. Um, uh, emotionally, I feel amazing. I feel like there's just uh, a lot of pressure or whatever that was leading up to it for that, from that training block going onwards. Like it's just off my shoulders. So I'm kind of just like uh, going on easy runs when I feel like it. There's no real agenda. Um, and it, I'm kind of just going back to the basics in that sense. But no, I'm feeling really, really good overall. Uh, and more so, I'm just inspired to see what I can do uh, in the ultra world. Talk to me a little bit more about that pressure that you just mentioned. Where does that come from? I, I well, it, it comes from myself, to be honest. You know, you, uh, you, we all have values, and just during the pandemic, uh, I really put running, uh, or I prioritized running uh, up front because I feel like that's really like my true calling, or in a sense, like there's any way I can make a personal impact. Mm -hmm. um, in this world, it's through my running. And, uh, as a result, I kind of just put pressure on myself. I knew that I can do something really, really amazing. Uh, and I feel like running longer distances than a marathon is more so curtailed to, uh, just who I am as a person, uh, and the type of training that I've done leading up to this event, you know, starting from high school onwards. Why do you think that the longer events are are more a match for for you, your personality, and the way that you train? Uh, I just didn't know. In terms of feeling, I didn't know any better just growing up. And when I became a very competitive college runner, it was not uncommon for me to go on twenty mile long runs and not feel up. You know, not stop for water and like go for like six minute pace. So I, I felt like I've done some front loading, at least on, uh, on the mental aspects of that leading up to this event. Uh, so as a result, I just felt very confident in like my background. When did you decide to shift your focus toward ultras? Because this 100K that you just ran was only your second ultra. Your first one was back in November. You ran the JFK 50. Prior to that, you know, you've been focusing on marathons for a few years. You just described how you ran collegiately. But when did that switch flip for you and you decided this is the year or this is the time that I am going to pursue these longer distances with some intent? You know, uh, the Olympic trials happened on the last day of February last year. Mm -hmm. And then two weeks later, we had, you know, the U.S. was in lockdown. So things shut down. And when I ran the trials, I was working and I'm still teaching, but I was teaching a, in class. And from my experience, living in the Bay Area, I feel like just the lifestyle of 
having a full-time job and commuting, coming back, doing these workouts, it's very, very grueling. And initially when I ran the trials, I wanted to just take several months off and really reevaluate uh, my running career and whether or not I want to pursue it on a competitive level. And it was also just a time for me to uh, see my friends and family because when I was training for the trials, I really kind of just, I was essentially in quarantine before quarantine was a thing. And it was driving, it was driving me stir crazy, but the caveat or, but, uh, but like we were, you know, things weren't shut down and my friends had normal lives. Uh, my loved ones had normal lives and here I was just coming home after a long run or whatever, or like after workout on a Friday night, just staying at home. So I, I was just mentally exhausted and lo and behold, I wanted initially several months off the pandemic hit and now I'm not commuting to work. I'm working from home and I have all this time on my hands. And so I just started to reevaluate running for me. And I started to see running as something that's more abstract versus something that's like very time oriented. Mm -hmm. And typically in our world, when we think of somebody, we think of them based off their accomplishments or the times that they ran. For me, when I looked back at my running career, I just realized that there's more to it than the times that I ran and just being out there uh, as a person of color, I feel like there's just subtext in what you do uh, in American endurance running. So I started to see it very abstract in that sense. So from the base, I knew that I had to continue running. And this was just a couple of weeks into the uh, pandemic of its uh, of itself. So that was thing one. And I'm like, okay, you know, I have no excuses. Let's try to reinvent the wheel. What can I do better this time around? And I was doing a lot of good things, but when I really reevaluated my running, I've come to realize that, you know, I wasn't getting enough sleep. Uh, my nutrition was great, but like after a hard workout, I'll eat anything and everything uh, just because I'm incredibly hungry. And when I was coming home from work, you know, I'm, I was just having dinner very late. I'd foam roll and then I'm trying to sleep. And then I, my sleep would be interrupted because I'd have to wake up to use the bathroom. And so my sleep wasn't that great. Uh, I learned how to take care of myself in the sense of like better nutrition. But I also started to explore and really uh, question the things that I was doing in terms of like the workouts uh, and how I carried myself because sometimes people would be like, Hey, I've been running for 20 years, but you can also in a, to put, to use basketball or shooting a free throw as an analogy, you can work on shooting a three, a free throw for 20 years. But if you use the wrong, or if you use improper technique or technique that doesn't serve you, you can be shooting it, but not to the best of your potential. And so that's how I kind of saw running. I'm like, okay, running's the, the way I've approached running has gotten me this far, but 
I felt like there, I could do so much better. And I kind of had to deconstruct certain notions that I held in that sense. So I was exploring a lot of things from strength workouts, uh, to, uh, mobility, um, just to like really tackle issues that I've had in a sense of like dealing with injuries and trying, trying to keep my body in, uh, intact essentially. Along these lines, I had read an Instagram post from you not that long ago and you wrote that you invested a good amount of time during COVID unlearning things that you once believed were conducive to your running craft and breaking habits that had once served you well. Um, and your exact words were, it felt like I had to learn how to walk all over again, but more efficiently. Is that what you're referring to when you're describing this process that you went through post trials? Absolutely. And when you're in, and you're in, if you're a working professional, more times than not, you kind of stick to what has quote unquote worked for you or has gotten you to the dance or has gotten you so far that you really just don't have much time to really take a step back and reevaluate how you can do that thing a little bit better. So the first couple of months, I was, I got, I mean, I only took a couple of weeks off since the trials. Um, one, because I was, I was gaining weight really fast, but, um, but for another was just to make sure that I don't take extensive time off and come back and, you know, have injuries or like, you know, have that, uh, little Nick that I'm like dealing with, but I really, during that time, I was kind of like a test subject in the sense that like, how does my body or how does my body manage strength training via like doing kettlebell, kettlebell swings? Um, how does my body manage doing these mobility drills? And obviously we learn how to stretch on a basic sense, but like, to the greatest degree, like for instance, I had a sports hernia for a couple of years. Uh, I dealt with it for a couple of years and I took, I would just take uh, ibuprofen like on the clock just to deal with it. And I ran, essentially ran the trials with the sports hernia. But that was kind of one of the issues that I had to, to manage. Mm -hmm. And uh, because literally it felt like a, a, I was being stabbed by like a, a butter knife every, with every step that I took, like not softly, but like pretty uh, thoroughly being stabbed by a butter knife. Whenever I took a step, whenever I took a step, that was one of the injuries that I dealt with. Um, and so having this time, I explored strength, strength training. I explored certain stretches, uh, stretches that you don't typically learn in your elementary PE school. Um, and then I also, explored proper nutrition and how I can keep myself feeling full and not having to just feed my pie hole with whatever and then just call it a day, you know? Do you think you would have been able to take these steps had it not been for the forced pause of the pandemic? No way. I, I was just always, I always kept myself busy Mm -hmm. uh, with, with work as a full-time teacher and doing that commuting, coming home, um, working out, doing my runs. So when I would not run or not work or not commute, 
I kind of just needed a breather. And the last thing I needed to do was just really focus on running and see how I can do a better job or what I can do better. But uh, I honestly read, I, there were just a few things that really were impactful for me. But reading uh, Stephen Pressfield's The The War, the War of, of Art, Art. yeah, Great that book. really helped me. Um, and just to summarize it, that book is essentially talking about us all having a creative muse or an, a thing in which we can uh, give to the world as a form of expression. But typically the common narrative, especially as like a working professional, um, I'm sure, you know, whatever jobs you've held, you've met coworkers who were artists or were mu musicians or were athletes. And it's not uncommon in that sense to, ha to have that narrative or dialogue where it's like the what if, you know, or like if I, um, and more so than not, sometimes people and myself included uh, would be like, Hey, you know, if I had more time, I would spend this time really working on my craft, be it art, be it music, be it this or that. And I always, I would always have that in the back of my head, you know, um, even just as like a full-time professional, but now I have no excuses because we're in a pandemic I don't have to commute. I'm not, I'm still working, but not as much. And so when I read the book, I was just like, you know what? Like, I really, like, I really have, the time is now to really mm -hmm. invest into my creative muse, uh, to really get to work. And so Pressfield just talks about how the artist deals with resistance and yeah. how resistance is invisible. And obviously Pressfield was a, he was a a struggling writer at first. Uh, and, you know, I think he went through a divorce, this and that. But he he writes this compelling book about how a writer faces resistance and that resistance is invisible. And some and more times than not, the working professional uh, faces resistance because you kind of are trying to find that balance between your work, between your craft, between your relationships. And so when I kind of brought that awareness being resistance uh, and how it affected my craft in the past, I started to go forth and I'm like, you know what? It's a very simple message, but resistance comes in all different ways, shapes, forms. It can be negative self-talk. It can be you watching TV versus sitting down and writing that next great novel. Uh, and you kind of have to understand that it's there. And the the story is, or the message is very simple, but sometimes it just needs to be heard and you just got to sit down and do the work. So when I read Pressfield's The War of Art, I saw running as like my muse. Mm -hmm. And I just, it gave me time on my hands to really reflect and look back and see how I can be a better runner, what I need to do. So I started to, and once again, I, I just started to reinvent the wheel for myself. And then the next step was looking for races during this time. I love that you bring up Pressfield's War of Art. It's one of my favorite 
books, and I'm glad you touched on the resistance. And I, I think what is such a big takeaway about that is our resistance, whatever it is, whether we're a writer, whether we're an athlete, um, whatever our quote-unquote art is, it's often self-fabricated, uh, or we're at least in control of, of most of it. And it sounds like the pandemic presented this opportunity to you to strip that resistance away. Like you couldn't, you know, you couldn't lean into all this stuff anymore because it was just gone. And you're like, well, now I have this kind of blank canvas. Um, what am I, what am I going to do on it? Um, what mm -hmm. mural am I going to paint? Yes, absolutely. And uh, there's a common narrative as like the pandemic being quote unquote bad. And obviously it's not ideal, but you kind of have to see this as like a glass half full given that if you do have your basic necessities met in terms of food, shelter, clothing, and when those things are addressed, you can start to ask those existential questions like, hey, like, why am I here? You know, what work can I display to the, wor to the world? And, you know, so on and so forth. Yeah, I think that's spot on. I've said something similar even on this podcast, I believe I've called it the pandemic of possibility. And at what other time in our lives have we had this forced pause where you actually have to sit there in silence, whether it's literal silence or figurative silence, and and figure things out and ask those deep questions because you can't just be super busy and on to the next thing and on to the next thing and on to the next thing. Um, and I think sometimes we get caught in that cycle and we don't even really realize that we're in it. Um, so we never have mm -hmm. the time to think about these things, or we know we should be thinking about these things, but you can easily push them off because you just use the excuse that you're busy or I've got to do, you know, X, Y, and Z. And I think these past 11 months or so have presented an opportunity for a lot of people, as you described for yourself, to really just hit, hit pause and reevaluate some things and try and understand how you want to move forward. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, there's still time um, for you to take that pause. And not saying that you can't take a pause when there's no pandemic, but mm -hmm. the, right now, the it's, it's just harder. It's, gen it's genuinely more difficult and resistance is going to be more apparent because you kind of have, you're kind of going back to like finding a balance. And sometimes you just need self-care and you need rest. I'd love to dig into the identity side of things, which is something that you touched on briefly earlier. Prior to this forced pause, did you think of yourself as Raj, the 217 marathon or Raj, the Olympic trials qualifier and not something greater than that as you had touched on earlier? Yeah, for the most part, especially in the sport that we do, it's uh you kind of just um associate yourself with the time that you ran mm -hmm. obviously we're more than just that we come from different backgrounds uh have different circumstances that we deal with whatever adversities they may be but i saw myself as like a a marathoner a olympic trials qualifier that ran a said time uh but that was like my pause or like my light bulb was more so just like in the pandemic being like, wait a minute, this is my creative muse. And I'm more than just the time that I've ran for one, 
two, what can I offer, be it in a way of like really reinventing the wheel as to how you approach training or what does it mean and or what does it mean when I show up to the starting line? What do I represent of myself, uh, my background, and what story am I telling when I'm running? Did it feel more meaningful in the buildup to the 100K, knowing that, and then during the race itself to realize, yeah, you wanted to be competitive and run fast, but that it was really about so much more than that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Especially in the ultra scene as well. Um, you don't have too much BIPOC representation. There aren't many people of color running ultra endurance races. Um, and the, the ultra marathon or the ultra or just the running community is very welcoming. But uh, at least like on the youth level, I feel like there's a disparity in terms of the needs being met in terms of like food, shelter, clothing, to like really pursue something in the greater scheme of things that can be trivial, such as long distance running. Um, because it's not, there is like a, an equity gap uh, between on a general, on a general, in a general sense between people of color and their resources that they have versus, you know, uh, white people. Um, mm -hmm. so I just felt like, at, you know, when you look at the, the starting line picture, uh, it kind of looks iconic in the sense that like people are wearing masks as the gun goes off. And uh, I had a buffer, but I, uh, I thought you had to take, you can take the buffer off immediately. Um, but I'm me and like one other guy don't have masks or a buffer on, but, um, that picture is, you know, I'm me, Fernando Cabada, who's an amazing runner himself and Brandon Johnson, who was pacing. We were the only three people of color, um, in a field of what total of 25 guys. I'm not sure. But I feel like just that picture alone, there's subtext in that. How do we close that gap that you alluded to a few minutes ago? It, it's it really, and and again, it, it goes back to like basic necessities being met. Um, in terms of like actually closing that gap, um, I feel like people like me can be more active in our communities um, in to like offer coaching on a youth level, uh, being a positive role, mo role model for our kids on a youth level. And I mean, that's how, that's what sparked me. Like if I didn't have, uh, coaches that looked like me or came from a similar background as me, um, I probably wouldn't have pursued running to that, to the greatest degree in that sense. Um, and I, I teach in an, in an urban environment as well. Um, and obviously I run, but for me personally, like I just haven't given that time to like coach cross country simply because I've prioritized like my own running. Mm -hmm. Um, but someday I feel like I will come back and give back to my community in the sense that I can provide knowledge and just, uh, be somebody that's there for them in running. Do you feel more of a responsibility coming 
off of an incredible performance like the Hoka 100K to tell your story more, to reach out to BIPOC kids and let them know that this is something that they could do and you're someone that they can look up to so that they can realize there are these types of possibilities for them that exist out there? You know, I'm not sure if it's a responsibility, but it can be a byproduct of me uh, and my muse that I'm putting out to the world. And as a result, I can have the potential to do so um, to the BIPOC community. I just simply don't know how to do that just yet. It might, you know, this or having an idea as to how I can might sprout today, tomorrow, might be years down the line. But that's something that I've thought about from time to time. But it's just uh, like actually putting forth the motion based off like a a plan or an idea, an action plan per se. Uh, it just I just haven't been able to really cultivate that and. And, you know, just going back to like me and running or for me reinventing the wheel for my running, that idea didn't sprout until years later, mm-hmm. like that, that, that light bulb idea. So I'm just naturally hoping that that can occur as well, too. Well, let's bat around some ideas. We both live in the Bay Area, opposite sides of the Bay. We come from different backgrounds, but we live not in the same exact community, but same general area. Like what can we do to work together and make running more accessible to just one more kids in general, but certainly more kids of color. You know, I mean, things that just pop into my head for one, uh, just having proper shoes and just, or just, uh, having like a, uh, you know what local shoe stores do like meet up at Wednesday, meet up on Wednesdays, jog for a couple miles, mm-hmm. uh, and have beers do that minus the beers, you know, uh, <laughs> for obvious reasons. But, uh, that is one way. And it, it's, fun. it's, uh, this is great because we're kind of just like having to think aloud and yeah. this is helping, this is kind of helping me out because it's one thing to just have or like think about it by yourself. But if you're having a verbal conversation with somebody and somebody's asking guiding questions or simple questions, um, but organ organized community runs is what comes into my mind. And I'm, and I know that's not <clears throat> innovative by any sense, but actually doing that um, and showing up, be it one person I, I genuinely believe something like that can be exponential, like in terms of growth and uh, yeah. be it, just have a couple people show up. And then it's like word of mouth, four people within a couple weeks, eight people within a couple months, it becomes its own little thing, you know? Yeah. I, I think you're onto something with that. And I'm glad you're open to having this thought experiment with me because it's something I've been thinking about over the past year. I mean, we have some incredible places to run here in the Bay Area, no matter where you are. And it just really kills me that there are kids, especially in some of these inner cities that are, you know, a short car drive 
away from some amazing trailheads and they'll never get the opportunity to access them or to go explore. And I know right now with it being COVID, it's not exactly easy to get a group together and go do that sort of thing. But Mm. for me personally, once we're out of the worst of this, like one of the things I, I want to do is to help create those opportunities. And I don't think it's super complicated from a execution standpoint, but it is going to take some effort to just get the people together and, and, and get them out like on the trails and get them out, you know, exploring and realizing that they have as much access to these things as everyone else. Absolutely. And it goes back to just doing the work. Um, and sometimes you kind of just need to not overthink it. Whatever initial ideas that sprout into your mind, kind of just write it down. And of those, like whatever stands out is more, or if it's like the most realistic thing to do, you kind of just do it. Uh, and then you'll get feedback, you know, from your brain, from peers, mm-hmm. whatever it may be. And then you reevaluate like, hey, how can I do this better? Or do I need to do something else? So I think just going out and actually doing it. Um, but as you're like talking, it just makes me think about like using social media or even just old school having flyers out. Yeah. Like meet up for a fun run or, you know, let's explore some trills. So, yeah, I think there are a bunch of ways to go about it, but I'd love to continue this conversation with you offline and see if there's a way that we can work together. And I know you're sort of bouncing back and forth between the Bay Area and Colorado right now, which I want to get into over the course of this conversation. But I think it would be amazing if once we're out of the the worst parts of this pandemic, we can just get more people out running in general and exploring this beautiful area that we call home. Yeah, absolutely. We can definitely talk about that further. So this this whole last like 20 minutes or so was a total tangent off my original question of how you came off of the 100K race. And the other part of the question that I wanted to ask you was, you know, physically, you said you're feeling pretty good. How does 100K on the roads especially compare to racing a hard marathon for you, at least in terms of the recovery in the weeks afterward? Oh man. Well, you know, this hundred K I felt better coming off this hundred K versus my first marathon. And I have to be honest, like I put in good intentions for the race, but I did not have the best result due to like some technical issues. Uh, one being me running the tangents, not all that great. Uh, and two, what people don't realize is that I had diarrhea running that race and I made six or seven, uh, like bathroom stops, like 30, 40 second bathroom stops that ultimately cost me, costed me the American record. Um, so I, I, I genuinely believe that my hundred K debut was like a B minus day for me. Uh, with the caveat just being that it was a, it was a debut and I'm just naturally going to be green. Mm -hmm. But as a result of that, I was able to, I I was like limping the first couple of days. And then, uh, within like the third or fourth day, I like went on a very slow jog at like eight, nine minute pace. 
by the end of the week or the sixth day right before uh, the week uh, since the 100K, I was able to just run run completely fine. And that was never the case for either JFK or the marathon where I feel like if you if you are struggling walking down, that's a really good indicator as in like you really putting it on the line um, or it could just be an indicator of you not feeling properly during the race. But uh, I just felt a little too fresh for the distance given. Um, so I'd really have to run another 100K to like give you an honest answer in regards to like, hey, what's the difference between coming off 100K and coming off a marathon? Playing off that, what would you do differently in your next 100K based on what you learned from this past one? Study the, study the tangents, for one. Um, I actually bumped into Tyler Andrews uh, several days prior, and he is very technical in a sense that like he'll like study the course to have a better understanding as to like what segments or how to run the segments, this and that. And when the gun went off, the initial five people, not including the pacers, uh, were going for world record pace. And I saw Tyler and Jim Walmsley is Tyler Andrews' uh, training partner. I saw both of them in a, a single formation. And uh, Tyler told me that like, hey, if you run, if you don't run in single formation, that's going to be equivalent to like you running in lane four for like a 1600 meter race. And you're going to mm -hmm. end up running 1620, you know, like 20 meters more, whatever it may be. So for the first, 15, 20 miles when I could see them visibly, I mirrored what Tyler and Jim were doing. The other runners were kind of on the outside. So I ran it just fine then. Uh, but the issue was I was so focused on where Tyler and Jim were going or by, by looking at them that I didn't actually look at the road in itself and see how they were running the segments. So when my pacer left, and when Tyler and Jim were not in sight, I think I was just not running those tangents properly. And given my watch isn't super accurate, but felt like it was it, that the watch does or is, is fairly decent. When I finished the race, I was like 63 miles flat, you know, which is what 0.8 more than mm -hmm. uh, more than the race itself. So that was. Thing one, running, learning how to run the tangents better. Uh, I felt like my nutrition game was really on point. Um, and typically, I guess what I did differently is that I have a really strong stomach. Um, and typically people would say or suggest like, hey, fuel with, you know, 15 or 20 minutes or within 15 or 20 minutes uh, and use that as an interval. But the issue of that being is that so much time is taken away and you're kind of just focused on your ne next pit stop. For me personally, rather than consuming 100 calories every 20 minutes, I would consume 200 calories every 30 minutes. Um, and I was using Univid gels 
which is based on Bombay and Univid gels, they have beta alanine, which is a supplement that I was taking for my training before the hundred K and that essentially delays muscle fatigue or the, the inducing of muscle fatigue. And I felt like that to like really, really help. Um, and it could perhaps be the reason as to why I might've felt really good after my marathon or after my ultra marathon. Um, so that was good. And I apologize. Sorry for taking the long road, but, uh, long story short, um, it'd be to run the tangents better, uh, and not have diarrhea essentially. What do you think it was that was sending you to the bathroom so many times during the race? You know, I, uh, I had leading up to the race in itself. My diet was amazing. Um, it was very, uh, my, I have a very pes- I have a pescatarian diet, so I don't eat carbs or like, uh, uh, or grains all that much, but I typically oatmeal fruits, a lot of vegetables. I'll bake vegetables. I'll eat salad, uh, fish, hummus, quinoa, and you know, like things of that nature would be dinner. And since we were essentially quarantining in the hotel leading up to the race in itself, uh, the hotel provided set meals. And the day before, um, there was lasagna on, uh, uh, for dinner. That was what was slated for us. It was lasagna with beef. And I typically don't eat beef, um, for many reasons. And the other option was like eggplant and something for vegetarians. And I just needed more food and I needed more calories the day before. So I decided to stick with the lasagna and I was eating outside and, uh, Carla Molinero, I'm not sure if you know who she is, but she's one of the top British. Correct. She was in the women's race. One of the top British ultra runners, Mm -hmm. uh, and very experienced. I was kind of picking her brains the night before and she kind of, uh, gave me a sense of relief. Like, Hey, like you'll be fine. Like you need the, you need the carbohydrates before your race. Um, you're going to be running for a while. Um, she even told me that she would eat half a dozen donuts the day before her race, which is something else. That's impressive. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) That's impressive. Yeah. I was, you know, for me, I'm a, a bigger runner, quote unquote, like I'm not the prototypical uh, height and weight for a runner. So I really try to watch my weight leading up to a race. And so I would get very type A in a sense of like what I put into my body um, and so on and so forth. So when she told me she she eats like half a dozen donuts, does X, Y, and Z, it brought a sense of relief. Mm-hmm. But I went on to have the lasagna um, I had some Gatorade and when I woke up the day of, I woke up a couple hours before race day or before the start of the race. And I immediately went to the bathroom and I was like, Oh great. I got that situated. And it was a decent bowel movement. And I'm like, okay, I'm definitely not going to be dealing with this during with, uh, during a uh, race day. So I had my first bowel movement. I do my uh, rope stretches, have breakfast, uh, 
use the Theragun to like warm up my muscles. And right before I left my hotel to go into the shuttle that took us to the race, I used the bathroom again. And I'm like, huh, okay. And so I get to the, I get to the race and, uh, we, the athletes had their own room. The Pacers had their own room. It was very safe. And, uh, 15 minutes before the race in itself, I had to use the bathroom again. And I'm like, okay, something's not right. Right. Yeah. And so I used the bathroom again and I was like, you know what? Like I've used it three times. I should be good to go. And during that time, my stomach was completely fine. Uh, I was just using the bathroom often, but, uh, I take my gel before the race gun goes off. Uh, I have my first bathroom break. I didn't, I didn't have to, I didn't have to take a dump or anything, but I did have to pee, uh, after the first nine or so miles at six minute pace. But after that, 30 minutes later, I had to use the bathroom very badly. And it was, uh, the, the onset was very quick. Like it was within five minutes. Like I like identified that I had to use the bathroom. And then a couple minutes later, I had to use it very, very badly. So I like used the porta potty. Um, essentially I peed out my shit and I was just like, Oh my gosh, this is, <laughs> this is not good. And I just like felt, I just felt a little off, but I got out of the bathroom and uh, caught up to my pacer. Uh, and we like just went through the course and it wasn't until like another hour until I had to use it again. But by that time, or actually uh, when I got to the 50 K, uh, I was on pace for like a 618, 619 and I felt great. The pacer, uh, got off the track from there onwards. I was using the bathroom every 5k and ultimately, and I, I teach math. That's my background. But when it came to the 95, the 95th K, I looked at my watch and I was like, I am literally on American record, record pace. pace. Yeah. You knew you were right there. Yeah. But I just had to take a shit and I was just like, Oh my gosh, like, can I hold on to this? And I got into the bathroom. I felt bad, but nothing really came out. I got out and I was just booking um, the last three miles. And I eventually missed the American record by like 40 seconds. And that was like a 30 to 40 second bathroom break, you know, on top of everything else between the tangents and, you know, previous bathroom breaks that certainly add up over time. I mean, that's, that's crazy. I'm curious, how did you like mentally just keep yourself even keel through all of those interruptions? That, you know, having a bathroom break or two was something that I've anticipated. Mm -hmm. uh, I did not anticipate seven or so, but your, my physiology was just great. Like my, I just felt good in that sense. And even just taking those breaks, it kind of just felt like a, a small rest between an, a very hard interval workout, if that makes any sense. So mm -hmm. if things got a little too tough or if had I been running at said pace, 
maybe my body would be a little bit more trashed as a result of it. Uh, so ironically enough, just taking those like 30, 40 second breaks probably made me feel really good. But the caveat is that I missed so much time and I can't make up that time. I can only just go back to running that pace that I need to run. What was going through your head as you were coming down that final last long straightaway to the finish? Oh my God. Well, on the, on the basic set in a basic sense, just relief because you're running a hundred K and anytime you're training for an ultra, uh, and you're going through your training cycle, you have an actual anxiety or stress of like actually finishing the race for one. Uh, and especially if it's your debut too. So one was just a huge sense of relief knowing that I was going to be done. And this was like a, a, a crazy buildup for me in a sense that I didn't, uh, take much time off after JFK 50. I only took three days off. So I just, there was a sense of relief that was, uh, that I was just uh, having uh, for one. Uh, for two, I wasn't sure by that time. I was kind of delirious, but I was like, maybe I can break the American record. Or maybe I'm on American record pace. Uh, so for that, in that sense, I was still just focused. And I was like running, quote unquote, fast, i.e. sub six minute pace down that stretch. Uh, and then three, uh, visualize, like literally, I can't say that I accurately visualized me doing this, but I'd say it was fairly, fairly close. And I genuinely visualized myself racing this event, uh, before it was officially announced and before I was even asked to do so. Um, so I thought that was just really, really crazy. I, I genuinely was not surprised because I visualized doing this like months prior, you know, and I, I wish I can give you like a more animated story as to like how I truly felt, but I genuinely expected myself to do what I did. So I was like, even, even keel on the stretch. Where do you think that pre-race visualization came from? Uh, for one, just having too much time on my hands um, <laughs> <laughs> during this pandemic. Uh, no, but two, uh, when we were struggling to find races to run, uh, this was like in July or August. Carbon X2 was not even spoken about, even within Hoka. But for some reason, I had a friend who like somehow had an inside scoop of there being a race in January or February uh, for a 100K world record attempt. I have no clue how he knew, um, but I remember going on a trail run with him and I was just like, you know what? I'm going to aim for to running that race and getting into that race. So that was, it initially sprouted in July or August. And then what affirmed that was there being no fall races and trail races opening up. And so when I saw that the JFK 50 miler uh, was scheduled to happen, I registered for that race, even though during that time, I genuinely thought that it was going to get canceled. 
Um, but the race director was just so adamant on having this race happen. Uh, and I, I told myself, I was just like, you know what, if I have a, a, a good enough race at JFK 50, I'm going to be asked to run carbon X two. And as I was training for JFK 50, I got a phone call from Kevin Searles, who's the vice president of the Aggies. And the Aggies are obviously sponsored by Hoka One One. Uh, Kevin told me, he was like, hey, like, uh, Hoka needs some pacers. Would you like to pace the event? And I was like, absolutely. Uh, I would love to pace the event. And in the back of my head, I was just like, you know, if I run JFK 50 well enough, and Hoka knows if I'm pacing this, that I'm scheduled to pace. I just had a sitch that I was just going to be asked. And if I wasn't going to be asked, I was going to ask them if I can run the the Project Carbon X 2. And uh, lo and behold, the day after JFK 50, uh, when I ran it, uh, I got an email from Mike McManus, who's the global marketing director and he was like hey we'd love to have you not just not pace it but to actually run the race and i was just like this is everything is just literally going according to plan it was meant to be it was like meant to be and i was like this is like this is like too good to too good to be true but at the same time i've like visualized all this happening um and so slowly as like i was like gaining momentum and i was finally had to run this race like i i can't say that i was like playing or creating this visualization but this visualization naturally was perhaps just a how it was kind of just like a that feedback loop you know like doing workouts uh putting in the volume and then my mind projecting what i can do as a result of it so after jfk 50 uh I was just like, you know, I'm going to have a really good day at Project Carbon X2. I just know it. And through my consistent training, which was an affirmation of itself, uh, and especially like the last weeks, like five and six of that training block, I was just like, man, like you're, you're, you're essentially ready. And uh, I, didn't, I didn't know that I was going to finish second, but I knew that I was going to just have a good race and, a, and an impressionable race for me. What were your expectations going in? Did you want to just chase that American record time? Did you want to be competitive against the rest of the field? Or were you kind of open to just seeing how it played out once you got out there? Yeah, so uh, weeks leading to PX2, PCX2, uh, Mike McManus reached out to all the athletes and he was like, hey, like, what is your projected race time? And uh, there's one very accomplished runner who's not Jim Walmsley. He said, and <laughs> he accidentally responded on, uh, this is like an email chain and naturally you're supposed to respond individually. But, uh, I think he accidentally responded to the whole group. Uh, and he said like, I want to run 559 and then dot, dot, dot sent from my iPhone. Uh, <laughs> it gave me a sense as like what people saw themselves doing. And I was like, man, this guy must be in really good shape. Um, either that or he's just uh, kind of naive. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, 
6.09 is like world record pace. For some reason, I feel like 6.12 is like right, it's like right around the ballpark in which I can run. And the reason why I thought of 6.12, which is six flat pace, six hours and 12 minutes, um, is because I eventually built up to running a 50K long run at 5.56 pace in altitude in Denver. And I think the time conversion to that is like 548. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, okay, if there's like a 12 second leeway and I double the distance, I'm just making an educated guess that I'm in 612 shape. But anyways, we, we get to Arizona and Mike's like, hey, Raj, so we have world record pace at 609. We have American record pace at 627. I was hesitant. I was just like, man, like, to be honest, I genuinely think I'm in 612 pace. And if I run or if I'm scheduled to run 612 pace and I, and I like slow down, I can at least have some leeway to like dipping under 627 uh, versus like if I was spot on 627 and I started to use the bathroom, I would have just fallen off, you know? Uh, mm-hmm. But that was that all in all, um, along with what Jim told me at the hotel uh, and Jim's a student of the game. Um, he's very meticulous in his preparation, but uh, Jim or Jim Walmsley, he just told me like, Hey, like you should read, if you're unsure, uh, I can send you an article about the history of the hundred K who ran that time. Um, and what, or how they were able to run fast times. But Jim essentially told me that nobody was able to negative split the hundred K for one. And for two, he told me that Nao Kazami, and I'm probably butchering his name, but Nao Kazami ran 609, but he ran it from point A to point B, and he ran it with the uh, with the headwind. Tailwind. Or, or tailwind, I apologize. Yeah, it was so, aided, I think, for like 70% of the race or so from reports that I've read. Yeah, it was heavily wind aided, so he probably ran several minutes faster for one, so as a result, we're on this racetrack in which you have to run tangents. I was just like, you know what? Like, aside from Jim, I don't think many people, those that are going after world record pace, I don't think they're going to survive. And Jim was very specific. He was like, at least two people are going to drop out from that pack running world record pace. And eventually three people dropped out and one person just essentially died out and he, he, he was right. And Jim himself missed, just missed world record pace. So I was just like, you know what? I, I have to give Jim his dues and what he's done in the ultra running game and just like really respect what he had to say. And I was like, you know what? If I stir on the side of caution, but not be too cautious, I can have a really stellar day for myself. Uh, And I mean, I don't want to say that I wanted runners to die out or anything, but I ran what I thought was best for me. And that was going out 612 pace. There are a number of places that I could go off of that, but I'm really curious. That was only your second ultra. You were out there for just shy of six and a half hours, which is four plus hours more than a marathon or what you typically run a mm-hmm. marathon and from just a, a mental standpoint, like where was your head at 
during the race and how does that differ from when you are locked in during a high level marathon where you are on the pace and you're riding this fine line between mm -hmm. hanging on and completely falling apart? Yes. Uh, so for one, um, doing very hundred K specific workouts, like that long run in which I ran 50 kilometers, uh, and even having like an environmental, uh, look or like, just like the environment in which I ran it, uh, to preface that I ran a 50 K long run, uh, on a loop and I made maybe 13 loops total. And, uh, each loop is about like two miles and some change. And also along with that, I run on, I run and train on my own just due to my circumstances of working full time. So I don't have consistent training partners. So all this like running on my own or running alone or, even just running circles around a track, uh, for 60 some odd miles. Um, those, those things were not an issue at all for one. The issue was just obviously going back, running tangents. Um, and then two, I, my personal background, um, I genuinely believe that running shorter days, shorter races, for me personally are tougher than running longer races in a sense of like the intensity. And, uh, after I ran that two seventeen debut marathon, I went straight into 10 K training and I was running the similar volume as I was for a marathon, but I was just doing these like gut wrenching workouts in which I was like running tempos at like sub five minute pace doing these like track specific workouts in which I'm like doing nine minute, 20 second, two milers and having rest. And those things are just a lot more intense than running six minute pace. Uh, and the contrast between those two things is that at least when you're doing a, an ultra marathon, you kind of get settled in, you know, like you're naturally going to run, be running that pace just fine, but it's just making sure that your temperament is even keel, that you're getting nutrition versus like doing something that's just so intense in which requires like, at least for a marathon, like kind of like a, something that's equivalent to like a 10K physical exertion, you know, which you're like really pushing yourself. You've run two ultras now. JFK starts on the Appalachian Trail. It's like 15-ish miles or so, 17 miles, I think. Then you got 30-some-odd miles on a towpath. It's pretty flat and fast, mm -hmm. and you can really just open it up and run. Carbon X2 was 100K on the roads, flat course. I mean, runnable the whole way. You're on, you're on the gas running six-minute pace. Looking ahead for you, do you want to continue to focus on road ultras and opportunities where you can take advantage of your running ability? Or do you have any interest in transitioning to doing some more trail stuff with elevation gain and trickier terrain, that sort of thing? You know, uh, what many people don't know is that when I ran JFK 50, I actually sprained my, my, uh, my ankle on mile seven on the Appalachian trail, like completely sprained it. Uh, oh. I remember jumping, I was doing just fine, but I had to like jump a log and I couldn't see where I was landing my foot. 
And uh, sadly enough, when I landed my foot, I felt an immediate jolt in my lower back and then it trickled up to my spine and it just hit me. Like, I was like, Oh my gosh, no way. I just pain as you're describing. (laughs) Yeah, no, I apologize. I mean, that's my biggest fear that I'm trying to like untangle Mm -hmm. um, is a sprained ankle. Like I, I mean, not only does it hurt, but it's just something that can really derail your running but I uh, sprained my ankle on mile seven of the Appalachian Trail. And immediately when I did that, uh, naturally your first reaction is a sense of relief in the sense like, oh, I don't have to run this race. Um, but then after that, it's just sheer disappointment, being bummed out uh, and traveling to Maryland to run this race uh, was a sacrifice in itself, you know, during a pandemic, um, you know, like financial costs, et cetera, et cetera. But, uh, when I sprained my ankle, I, the, the nearest aid station was like three miles away on the trail. So I, I, I obviously stopped at first and then I was like hobbling on it and people were passing me by. And I, and then I was like, okay, I have no choice but to like, kind of like jog. So I like started jogging and then I was kind of like limp running essentially and jogging mm-hmm. still. But long story short, I got out of the Appalachian trail and, uh, was able to really start booking it on the towpath. But, uh, what I'm trying to point out is that I'm still very green or just, a still inexperienced with trails in of itself. And, uh, that's something that just needs to take time. Um, that I, or that's time that I need to invest, like really working on. So being competitive on the trails is not something that I see for this year, but I do see myself being competitive in the road ultra scene, uh, more so for a race like comrades, uh, which is scheduled to happen in June. It might just be delayed until September. I'm really not sure. Uh, but Comrades would be like my next big ultra marathon race and then coming back running JFK 50 again. Uh, I don't mind doing that, especially if the, the given the, the Appalachian Trail is unforgiving. Um, it is also only 15 of the 50 miles. How did your training evolve when you decided to? sign up for JFK and then eventually the carbon X two projects. Uh, for one, I took the trails and for me, I am just not known to be a trail runner as mentioned, but the, if I had to say before those, uh, before training for JFK and carbon X two, um, if I can count the number of times I ran a trail run within eight years i would say maybe three times there are probably three times in which i was exclusively on a trail doing a run of that nature like one of them was just a standard pub run for like five miles the other one was just i don't know why but i was just bored and i was like you know what let's go for a trail run um but other than that i never ran trails i exclusively ran roads 
And when there was a pandemic, obviously, naturally, all the road races were canceled for one. And as mentioned, when I like took a moment to reflect on my running and see where I can take it, I also started to explore other options. And I saw that trail races outside of California were opening up. Some were had in places like Utah and other parts of Colorado, not named Denver. So when I realized that trail races were a thing, um, I just started going on trail runs. I contacted uh, Chris Thoburn. You might know who he is. Uh, he's yep, a local. In the East Bay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's a local uh, trail, trail ultra guy himself. So I contacted him, started to pick his brains. Um, and I was just so green in the sense that I thought that your road times can convert to your skill on the trails. And I was just so wrong. I was just so, so wrong. Um, And it took a few falls, some scrapes and some sprains to really realize that they're just two different things. And it it just gave me a new uh, sense of appreciation for trails in itself. Um, but essentially long story short, I started to implement tra- uh, trail running into my training because I thought that I was going to be running trail races in the fall. Do you foresee more marathons in your future or going back to racing shorter distances from time to time, whether it's on the roads, cross country course, or even shorter trail events? I really want to specialize in roads or in uh, marathons and ultra marathons. Um, if I have to, if there's one complete runner, I genuinely believe it's Jim Walmsley in the sense that this is a guy that has run a hundred mile trail race. And then he quote unquote stepped down in distance to run the Olympic trials in place 22nd. And this is just a guy who has been able to have a very high volume and I think he himself honestly has inspired me to to understand that like, hey, just because you run a lot of trails and ultras does not necessarily mean that you're going to lose speed by any means. If anything, it, the first thing that it does mean is that it can help uh, give you the necessary volume without really running a lot of distance. So for instance, you can, if the elevation is like pretty solid, you can run you can run like a 10 mile trail run at like eight thirty pace or something, you know? And that's like, that can take you like a couple hours. Mm-hmm. Long story short, I really feel like trails can give you strength for roads and ultras. Um, and it won't slow you down. And as a result, I really want to use trail running to supplement marathon and ultra marathon racing, which I feel like is like pretty transparent between the two. I love that. And I think it goes the other way too. just the pure fitness that you can gain from training for a road race marathon specifically. Well, as you just described, it doesn't automatically translate to the trails because there is a technical level of skill that you need to become adept at. That fitness can definitely translate once you get more comfortable on that Mm -hmm. type of terrain and it can really take you to some places. Yeah, absolutely. But really learning how to descend um, learning how or what effective ways you can descent and go down um, are skills that you definitely need. 
in that and just being efficient in your running economy and even practicing like fueling mm-hmm. while you're going on these runs and where to fuel, you know, all these are all variables that go into play versus peer running. And I think the cool part about trail running is that it's technical and it, and it being technical naturally makes it multidimensional. I think it's more athletic too, in my experience, because yes, you're running and you need a high level of aerobic fitness to do that. But because of the variety in the terrain, the climbing, the descending, uh, even just your footing underneath and learning how to how to navigate that you've got to be a better overall athlete in order Mm -hmm. to be successful on the trails whatever that means for you not just at the top end of the sport but if you're someone who is used to just road racing and you want to transition to the trails becoming a better athlete goes a long way yeah no absolutely for sure and uh, um even just supplementing that training with like cross training strength work uh, weightlifting. And I'm not sure I, I'm, I might be butchering her name. It, I believe it's Renee Meltvier. Mativier. Yeah. Renee Mativier. Yeah. Renee Mativier. She's an amazing, uh, she, she runs ultras as well too. And I think she has like the hundred K or hundred mile world record on a treadmill during the pandemic. Um, and if you just look at her Instagram, she, I think she owns a, it's not a fitness studio. I uh, feel like that doesn't do it justice, but she owns like this like performance center. In Bend, Oregon. In Bend, Oregon. That is correct. Mm -hmm. And she's obviously a very accomplished runner, but if you look at her physiology and like the, the workouts that she does, it's not all that different from like somebody running the 800 meters. Mm -hmm. You know, she's putting in explosive work dynamic stuff et cetera, et cetera. And that has allowed her to be, uh, to be injury free and to run the trails very strongly too. Yeah. You become a more well-rounded athlete and you almost don't have a choice, but to be, uh, because if you have weaknesses like that, the trails, as you've described in this conversation, they will definitely expose them for you. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I just have a whole, another level of respect for trail runners and trail running in itself. Um, and, and I'm still learning the game and trying to understand like, Hey, like, like this is not necessarily a bad day on the trails. Like you just didn't do this and you can come back and perform mm-hmm. a little bit better the next time around. Yeah. I think that's some great perspective in the remaining time that we have here. I want to hit rewind and go back to, your beginnings. Do you remember your first run? Yes. Uh, my first run, that's not a PE mile. Is that what we're referring to? Sure. But you could describe the PE mile to me as well. If you remember your experience doing that. Well, uh, long story short, I was essentially overweight and I just didn't have much going on for me in high school. And my, uh, my family has a history of heart disease and my dad passed away when he was 40, um, to a heart attack. And at that time I was almost 200 pounds as a sophomore in high school. Um, and my mom expressed her concerns in regards to my health as I did not eat well at all. Um, 
And it was the uh, New Year's Eve of 2006. And I kind of, I broke, I ripped out the back of a cereal box and I took a Sharpie out and I just wrote a list of goals. And two apparent goals that stood out were uh, to lose 45 pounds. I don't know why 45, I just put a, just a random number and to run a mile in, I believe under 620. Uh, so when I put those goals down, I took the PE mile seriously and I, given that I was very heavy, I was still fairly, uh, I, I still was able to run fairly well given my like weight. And even during that time, I was able to run like a seven minute mile off the, out the bat. Uh, but anyways, like once a week I'd run the PE mile and naturally I would PR every week because for one, I was a novice and two, I was just losing weight every week. Uh, but it wasn't until, uh, spring break of 2007 and I saw a Tylenol commercial. It was about this guy who runs until he gets lost, apparently. And I was just like, you know what? Maybe, uh, I can just go out for a run that's not on the track. And for me, like being a kid, nobody my age just went for a run, you know? Mm-hmm. Like nobody just goes out for a run. And so I packed my track bag with a water bottle and I eventually started my run from home, Hercules, and I went to Rodeo, which is going towards, uh, going towards Vallejo. But I essentially ran until I couldn't really run all that much or until I like stopped and was doing intervals of jogging and stopping and resting. But that run ended up being about five or five and a half miles, which took a couple of hours. And the last, I'd say the last mile or half a mile was just hellacious um, because I was just dying and I just never ran like that. But I remember after when I finished the run, I was like on the ground for like 20 minutes and I was like sore for the next three or four days. (laughs) How'd you get home? Oh, I, 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 it was an out and back. That's what I did. Okay. So you I, ran I, to the, you ran to this point and then, and then flipped it and just headed back home. That is correct. I ran from Hercules to Rodeo. Uh, and, and then I was like, and then I had intervals of stopping and going and then Rodeo back. And were you excited to get out there again? How were you feeling in those moments or even in the days afterward when you were laying on the ground destroyed and your body was incredibly sore from the effort you just put out? I I didn't think too much of it. I remember telling my friends like what I did during the break and I told them I went on like a five mile run. Uh, None of them believed me. They're just like, what are you talking about? Like, especially like just being like in Hercules, there's no real like endurance running background, at least back then. So nobody understood why you would run five miles and nobody would believe you if you ran five miles. But uh, I just remember going back to running the PE mile and I saw like a very incremental improvement, especially since we had that week off and I used it to do that long endurance run. Um, But I didn't think too much of it until the summer uh, in which my friend told me that there's a sport called cross country that the school had and used, um, or th- that the school had and did in order to condition for basketball. 
And I remember in the 10th grade history class, I was just like, when he told me that, I was just like, what, what do you mean cross country? Uh, so when I found out that that was a, a real sport, I was doing that type of run uh, every other day with stops. And then eventually I remember stopping at like the liquor store. I would, I would stop at like a, under a tree at a outside of a liquor store in Rodeo. And I remember somebody like just uh, giving me kudos uh, before Strava was a thing <laughs> and in real life, uh, giving me kudos and just, and told me, he's like, Hey man, why don't you not stop? And I was like, man, that's an amazing idea. I'm like, wait a minute. I don't have to stop. So it eventually became a, a, a five mile run uh, that, that I just uh, maintained and I was able to do consistently. When did you start getting competitive with it? Well, I ran junior, I ran cross country in fall of 07 and uh, I was naturally the best runner on my team. Um, but I wasn't competitive in league. Like I remember placing 46 out of 62 runners my junior year, uh, at the cross country league championships. Uh, but it wasn't until, uh, track season in my junior year and uh, winning the team MVP award for cross country at Hercules high. That was like my first real award. That was not a participation medal. Um, it gave me like all the momentum to like actually take running seriously. And so, uh, I'd say junior year, my track when I ran a 443 mile and a 10, 11, two mile. And that was like being a year removed after losing all that weight and running a 608 mile, I believe. How much weight did you end up losing in total? Uh, I ran, I lost more than 45 pounds within a couple of months. Like it, it, it came off very fast. Um, and it wasn't because I was doing some very crazy extraneous activities. It was, it was just me running the PE mile once a week, uh, me jump roping at night and me playing pickup basketball. That's literally all I did. But, uh, I just didn't have the, my idea of nutrition back then was like eating iceberg lettuce, uh, weight watchers meals that were like frozen foods um, and really depriving myself of those nutrients. So I did lose the weight, but I didn't lose it in the most healthy scenario in that sense. So I was able to lose it within a couple months. And was that all just self-directed, meaning you felt like that's what you needed to do in order to stay healthy and not revert to those bad habits and subject yourself to a family history of heart disease? Yes. For one, it was for health reasons, um, to have a better identity with my health and body. Um, at that time, obviously I thought what I was doing was healthy, um, mm -hmm. which it wasn't, but it was definitely healthier than drinking soda three times a day and eating cookie dough. Uh, for one, for sure. When did, you realized that it wasn't healthy or wasn't sustainable and you needed to make some changes from a nutritional standpoint because you just weren't feeding your body or nourishing your body in the way that it needed given how much you were running and jump roping and playing basketball. From 
And that, uh, that stretch was from January until like May ish. So when I lost those like 45 to 50 pounds, um, I was more confident in just having quote unquote, a normal diet in which like I can eat pizza, I can eat nachos. Like I honestly just from there, I just went back to just being a normal high school teenager. Mm -hmm. The only difference is that I'm not drinking soda and that I'm not eating cookie dough. So I had a standard after that, you know, I, I had a normal teenage diet in which I had cereal for breakfast, a sandwich for lunch, um, and then like pizza for dinner. And I was just able to consciously watch my weight. And if I like gained a pound or two or whatever, I'd like, uh, take the, I'd like put the brakes on myself, you know, and be a little bit more mindful with the meal that I had or, uh, if I was like on weight or if I lost a little bit of weight, it gave me like some leeway to like eat pizza, you know? So I went from having a really terrible background in eating food to eating like a teenager, which is not ideal, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it sounds like you went from one extreme to the other and then over time landed somewhere generally in the middle. Yeah, generally in the middle and then through years, as years went by, you just learn a thing or two and you held on to that thing or two now to a point where I like being or eating healthy was like a linear progression versus like, it was not something that I like learned to do overnight. And I Mm -hmm. think that's what people don't understand. Like sometimes people want to, and again, I was on the caveat in the sense that like I was just stubborn and I was able to lose the weight. But more times than not, if you're very strict with your diet or if you make a very drastic lifestyle change, you're not going to be able to sustain that. And somehow or some way you end up back to square one. But me and my relationship with my diet and food has been a 14-year journey, essentially. Is it one that you're still on today? It's one that I'm still on today, but it's probably the... I probably have the best or I have the healthiest diet for me. Um, and I, as mentioned, I really don't eat. I don't even feel inclined to eat bread. It's just very nutrient dense. There's protein. Um, I genuinely enjoy eating baked vegetables that are sauteed and have salt on it. Um, I love eating salad with hummus and fish or, and salmon uh, with quinoa. These are just foods that are just very nutrient dense and very nutritious. And if you you just know it's serving your body right and the volume that you're uh, you're trying to uh, carry in terms of training. How much do you think about your family's history with heart disease and losing your dad at such a young age as it relates to your running and how? you nourish your body today? Uh, I think about it a lot, especially as I, well, I thought about it a lot as a teenager when I was losing the weight. And then when I lost the weight, I just naturally assumed that I was a healthy individual. So Mm -hmm. then it was on the back burner, but I remember quitting or when I stopped running uh, after college and I was like kind of getting into like weightlifting, traditional weightlifting. I remembered um, having my physical 
and getting my cholesterol results back. And the doctor was just like, you have really high cholesterol levels. And I was just like, what? And obviously there are LDLs and HDLs, I believe. So there's bad cholesterol and good cholesterol. Mm -hmm. Um, But he's like, yeah, this is not ideal. And I was like looking back at the food that I was eating and I was eating like a lot of chicken, a lot of eggs, but I also wasn't going on uh, endurance runs anymore. You know, like granted I was doing weightlifting. I'm still not burning fat for like two hours. Like I'm using different energy energy source. So that allowed me, that feedback from the doctor kind of allowed me to reevaluate, uh, again, like my diet and really reinvent that, you know? So that was like my feedback loop. Like, okay, like, yeah, I'm eating better than I was in high school, but this is what I, this is another change that I need to make. Is it a constant level of fear that stays with you? Not yet. Not yet. To that degree, I do believe as I'm getting older, it's slowly, uh, it's slowly adding on that fear for sure. Absolutely. Um, and it's not uncommon for, uh, Indian men. There, there is a correlation of heart disease and being Indian. Um, and it's also like a cultural thing too. There are a lot of like, at least in the Indian culture, there's a lot of foods that we eat that are like fried. You know, a lot of fried vegetables uh, and sweets, all these other things. But yeah, it's uh, definitely, as the years go by, I'm naturally going to think about this more and more for sure. Something you said a few minutes ago that jumped out to me that I'd love to explore a little more with you is that after college, you said you stopped running for a little while and got into weightlifting. What was behind that? decision to hang up the spikes, so to speak, and not pursue that for a little while? Yeah. Uh, for one, it was injuries. Um, senior year of senior year going into cross country. I remember doing like a Turgot long run in which you pick up like the last few miles and my left leg for some reason started to give out. And I was like, what the hell is going on? And I was, endured a season of dealing with that issue and things that helped were massages, chiropractor visits, et cetera, et cetera. But again, I'm a college student and I have the access to those resources. But uh, out of college, I immediately tried to pursue road marathoning and I was like training for a half marathon and that injury eventually um, crept up again. And this is actually, I apologize. This is not an injury. This is just like a, an issue, um, because it doesn't hurt, but it starts to affect my leg. If I'm running several miles at like marathon or faster pace, you know, but, uh, this issue that I had in which like my leg shutting off impeded with me actually performing well. And I was kind of just like, you know what, like, Maybe like my running days are over. Um, and uh, by that time I was like 23 or 24, but I, for some reason thought that like, because I ran, I've been running for seven years that I'm like, uh, I've like obtained mastery, at least like mastery of knowledge in the craft that I do. And that I've like know almost everything about this, which was far from the truth back then. And it still is far from the truth now. 
Um, so I quit and I eventually just got back into something that I thought was healthy for me. Um, and I just was trying to figure out if this was something that like, Hey, like I don't have to be competitive, but I can like do this to sustain, um, my mental health and obviously my like physical well being. But the reality is like, if you're not competing and if you're like a former athlete and you're like, it's, it's hard. Yeah. Like at a certain point, you're just, there's just really no true motivation to like stick in the gym. If there's like no end means, you know, or if there's no goal to like push towards aside from like a PR that you're going to have for yourself. What did the process of getting back into competitive running at that time look like for you? At that time I was in graduate school and I put on 20 pounds of bulk. Um, I, I, you know, I, I genuinely, I'm a huge fan of professional wrestling and I genuinely considered like WWE type. Like WWE type. Yes. Um, Okay. And so when I started, I watched it as a kid growing up too. I loved it for the longest time. uh, No, absolutely. Um, but I genuinely thought about like getting into professional wrestling in that sense. So I like started putting on this weight and I was like, uh, doing these like weightlifting exercises but when I like saw myself like start from scratch and do something completely opposite of endurance running, I was just like, man, this is going to take several years of its own just to get into the shape in the shape that I want to be to pursue Mm -hmm. something that's going to take years of practice. And by then I'm going to be like in my early to mid thirties versus like, you know what, man, like, like, you know, I've been running versus like something in which I've been running for like several years. I'm just like, you know, like I can't quit now. Like I put all this time, all this effort, all this energy into this one thing. Like, yeah, it hasn't been ideal, but let's go back to this and let's try to figure out what I, how I can fix this issue. It's super interesting to hear you describe that because it's almost like an earlier reckoning that you had with the sport much in the way that you describe what happened just in the past several months over the course of this pandemic, as you took the time to sit down and reevaluate your relationship with competitive running. Yeah, absolutely. And I think at that time I might've had more time on my hands than not. I was a a full-time graduate student and I was working part-time as a barista. Um, So I definitely was able to ask existential questions you know like as in like hey like you know what what's my calling or what can i do or you know what why am i here so i had those i had that moment of clarity so i stopped weightlifting as if i wanted to become a bodybuilder and then i got back into running again that along with uh my graduate school degree was in um exercise science it allowed me to like really we explore endurance running and I kind of just saw it from like a coaching standpoint um, as to like, how can I train myself? Um, And I was at that time, I was like also coaching part-time at a junior college, which really uh, helped kept my spark for it. When did you decide that you wanted to get into teaching? Uh, Well, I was in graduate school for my program and it wasn't until, uh, 
fall of 2016, I took on substitute teaching. And there are some really good teacher runners, even in the PA circuit. Like if you know who Malcolm Richards is. Oh yeah, he's the man. He is the man. I I, I genuinely look up to that guy. Uh, he's kind of like my local idol. But um, just seeing how Malcolm Richards was able to balance teaching and being a competitive runner and doing something that's very soul feeding on both ends kind of like ignited that for me. And I just kind of saw myself and I was like, Hey, like, you know, I can be a teacher and I can also pursue competitive running. And I can also have those intervals of breaks, you know, be it winter break, summer break, spring, spring break, et cetera, et cetera. I just thought it was very healthy in every sense of the word. You work with, kids you mentioned earlier how you're working with mostly minority kids over in the east bay what effect do you hope to have on their lives you know i'm so fixated i teach uh, algebra 2 and general math as a high school uh teacher um in that sense i'm very more so ironically enough just focused on how they can access their education and see if i'm a decent access uh, or pathway into the math in which they're learning. Um, but outside of that, I just want them to challenge notions and understand like, Hey, like being good or being bad at math is not a very fixed thing. You know, it's more so like the metacognitive thinking in which I, um, take up and like my thought processes as to like how to approach a problem. Um, so long story short, it's more so like teaching my students how or different ways in which they can problem solve and also kind of just have that feedback loop. If something doesn't work for them, how can they do it better? And that's kind of a, of a reflection of my running journey in which like understanding or learning from my pitfalls and reassessing and then going back to the drawing boards. Mm-hmm. And then like having an action plan, you know, I feel like there's definitely a correlation between that and how you approach uh, doing math. Do you have any interest in coaching? I, absolutely. I did coach when I was substitute teaching. I was coaching on the junior college level, uh, exclusively distances. And uh, I'd say once this is all said and done, and again, I'm, you know, still in my twenties, but when this is all said and done, um, I feel like my way to give back is as a coach. I do hope in the future that I can coach on the junior college circuit and run full time. I think that would be the dream as crazy as that may sound like be a junior college track or cross country coach and then coach as well or, and uh, run competitively as well. I feel like those things would just go hand in hand. You and CJ Albertson seems to be working pretty well for him. Yeah, no, it seems like, yeah, it's definitely working for him too. He's, that's a whole nother animal for sure. Um, I know you've been going back and forth a lot recently between the Bay Area and Denver, at least from what I've seen following you on Strava. Can you tell me a little bit more about what that's all about? Yeah, so when I visualized myself running Project Carbon X2, I set forth an action plan and one of the quarrels that I had, even though despite training in the Bay area, I felt like I didn't, I wasn't all in, in a sense of like really being in altitude uh, 
being in elevation. So once I got the email in which I found out that we were going to be teaching from home, mm-hmm. I immediately, and it coincided with my lease ending up at the end of July in Oakland, but I immediately started to look for a place in Denver. And uh, so I essentially, long story short, I packed my bags, uh, moved to Colorado, and was able to work from home. And one of the advantages is that since Colorado operates on mountain time and is a mount, is an hour ahead, uh, school doesn't start for me until 1030. Mm. So what that really means is that I can not only sleep in, I can wake up, have a meal, go for a proper run, get that workout in, come back, foam roll, stretch out, shower. And then I'm like at work versus like, if it was uh, not from working from home, um, I'd like wake up at five in the morning, stretch, run, come back, grab my coffee and oatmeal, shower up. And then I'm like commuting and I'm eating my oatmeal from a, from a bowl, you know? So, uh, this opportunity working from home has just allowed me to really add volume into my running and to, uh, do it all in altitude as well. And are you able to come back here and visit your mom in the East Bay? Absolutely. I feel like I have just the perfect uh, balance. I'm actually back home in the Bay Area right now, um, but I've been coming home fairly often. Uh, I, I was coming home. I, I've come home several times already, and there was a two-month a two stretch in which I spent like three and a half weeks in the Bay Area naturally. Uh, so I've been here a good amount of time, and flights are cheap and yeah, it's honestly very accessible coming back. Last question before we wrap up this conversation. What does running mean to you? Running for me is an act of rebellion. As I mentioned, there's subtext in which if there's a BIPOC person on the starting line and you see a picture of them in a, in a sea of people, I feel like you're really giving a narrative that goes against the grain in terms of like what society is expecting of you or how society views you. So running for me is my personal act of rebellion. Uh, and it, it is something that goes against the grain as to like, uh, what you do as a first generation Indian American. And, uh, from our backgrounds, you know, there's a huge emphasis on education in the sense of becoming a doctor, becoming an engineer, um, and doing something that, that I feel like just juxtaposes that in a sense of like what people expect out of you is rebellion to me. I love it. I think that's a great place to wrap up this conversation. You're a rebel with a cause. Uh, I've really enjoyed this last hour and a half plus learning more about you and your journey. Raj, thank you so much for coming on the Morning Shakeout podcast. This was awesome. Thank you, Mario, for having me. Thank you so much for listening in to the Morning Shakeout podcast. A big thank you to New Balance for sponsoring this week's episode. I was recently able to get my hands on a pair of the new 1080 V11s, and I was shocked to love them even more than I did last year's V10 model. 
New Balance claims that the 1080 offers the ultimate ride, and I'd have to agree. This is the best fitting shoe that I own by a landslide, and the Fresh Foam X cushioning feels super comfortable underneath my feet. It's lightweight and flexible, but also responsive and durable. Basically, the perfect trainer to log most of your miles in, which is exactly what I do. I wear it on most of my non-workout days and for long runs too. So check out the Fresh Foam 1080 V11 on newbalance.com and consider adding a pair to your rotation today. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend about it or throw up a post on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook and encourage your friends and followers to subscribe to the show. You can also leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're listening to this on, which only takes a minute and it really means a lot to me couple more things before we wrap up i'd like to give a shout out as always to my longtime producer john summerford who makes every episode of the podcast sound clear and amazing also thank you to jeffrey stern for running the am shakeout social media accounts and chris douglas for handling sponsorship sales last thing if you are digging this podcast i think you will love my newsletter it's also called the morning shakeout and you can subscribe to it at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe Every Tuesday morning, you'll get my take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to. It's a quick read, 5-10 minutes tops, but it will give you plenty to think about throughout the rest of the week. Again, you can sign up to receive it at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. Okay, that's it. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of The Morning Shakeout Podcast. Mm-hmm.